Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarzschrauber, your host. On today's show, net neutrality, this new exciting topic that we're going to explore on the podcast for the first time. Uh, joining me to discuss this is the sourest grape in tech policy, Baron Soka. Baron, thank you for joining the show. Yes. <laughs> yes. To all of that. That's a good answer. So a quick recap on this very new and exciting issue. Uh, back in May of 2014, Chairman Tom Wheeler, our favorite FCC chairman of all time, uh, decided that he was going to protect net neutrality. Uh, and for listeners who are unfamiliar with this topic, uh, net neutrality is essentially the core principles of how internet traffic is treated. Uh, no blocking, no throttling, and no discrimination. And then beyond that, there's a lot of disagreements about the margins, like paid prioritization of certain traffic. May of 2014, Wheeler releases a very, in hindsight, modest proposal to address those concerns. Uh, and the left uh, wasn't having any of it, so they pressured him, including the White House, which interfered in the supposedly independent agency's proceedings, asked him to reclassify broadband providers under Title II rules, which are essentially monopoly-era telephone regulations from the 1930s, and then pair it back as they see fit to, quote, modernize and tailor it for the 21st century. So Obama weighs in in November of 2014, February of 2015, we get the vote. The rules take effect in June of 2015, and then immediately we had a bunch of lawsuits. And we did a show uh, recapping uh, this this loss that uh, <laughs> the petitioners and Tech Freedom suffered because we were an intervener in the case. And on Friday, we filed an appeal. So, Baron, why can't you just realize that you lost and, like, stop? <laughs> what would we talk about then? Drones or, or Uber or Airbnb all the time? Like things that people actually enjoy listening to. <laughs> right. Yeah. That stuff. So uh, why but, are you, I mean, dude, you've been at this for over a decade. Why do you keep doing this to yourself? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's only been eight and a half years. Oh, okay. So I, that's, you still got two more years before it becomes absurd. I, I have been watching this all unfold since about 2002. And I have to say, I'm, I'm pretty fucking sick of it. Uh, <laughs> well, but there goes that explicit rating in the iTunes That's store. why we have it. Every <laughs> once in a while, we got to drop the F-bomb. <laughs> I will just note for those that are really interested in this topic that Evan's summary covered about 15 minutes of the event we did yesterday. So good job. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it's a, it's a much shorter version and it's basically accurate. Before we get into the lawsuit, I will just say that... No blocking, no throttling, not controversial. But when you get into the margins, and you alluded to this, things like paid prioritization, but also things like throttling. I mean, we've talked about binge on on this yeah. show. If you want better, uh, more video that doesn't count against your data cap, T-Mobile will, quote, throttle it for you, according to its critics. So some people call that throttling. I don't think it's throttling. It's not what uh, 13 years ago anyone would have understood is the core concern here. Which was that a broadband provider was gonna was gonna turn off its competitors or or censor speech, right? So that just illustrates how these words like throttling have many meanings, and and that's where a lot of the debate lies about policy. But I don't think we want to talk too much about policy on the show today. We've talked about it before. The issue in this case is really not the policy differences; it's the underlying claim of vast legal authority to regulate the internet, and that is why I we're fighting on. We can't let the FCC win that or they'll be able to do whatever they want. Yeah. And net neutrality is really just the the issue that sparked the fight. And and we, we really have to make that point clear because every news story about this case is going to focus on net neutrality. And it's often going to focus on whether or not it's a good thing. And that's not what this case is about. It's about what can a regulator do and what can the FCC do to the internet? And what does that say about what the EPA can do? What does that say about what the IRS can do? 
the administrative state is increasingly becoming kind of like the fourth branch of government or just making the executive the most powerful branch of government and the checks and balances that Congress and the judiciary are supposed to place on the executive are increasingly being eroded. And part of that is that Congress is just lazy and doesn't want to have the staff that can understand these issues or maybe they don't have enough budget and we need to give them more staff. Maybe it's just that they'd rather fundraise off of the FCC rather than fix it. I mean, the incentives are not great. Re-election seems to be their only concern. And meanwhile, the FCC is running wild. Right. So so this is the right place to start. So let, let's just back up. So you already alluded to uh, the FCC here has invoked the 1934 Communications Act, which in turn basically was just a carbon copy of the 1887 uh, Act that, inter- that regulated railroads. So in other words, the, the, the fundamental issue here is the FCC is imposing literally railroad-style regulation on broadband. Now, they say that they're forbearing, and you talked about that. They what does say, that mean? So in the 1996 Telecom Act, Congress updated the 1934 Act, and one of the powers they gave the FCC was the authority to forbear from certain parts of the Act. In other words, they, they understood that the Act was not going to keep up with technological change because they really didn't even see the Internet coming. The 96 Act basically has very little to do with the Internet apart from preserving the separate categories of telecommunications, Title II, common carrier, versus information service, non-common carrier, which was a distinction that the FCC had actually been developing for many years. So, so other than that, the only thing that was in the 96 Act was an attempt to censor the internet, which fortunately got struck down by the courts. So, so anyway, the point is that forbearance was Congress's attempt to say, we don't see everything coming. We don't know how to deal with it. So we're going we're gonna to give the FCC some power to uh, not apply the, the parts of the act that, that don't make sense in the future. But this is really critical because this whole debate really turns on this topic. The FCC will say, well, yeah, so, so we know that Title II doesn't really work. So that's why we're tailoring it down and we're using our forbearance power to do that. But the point that we've tried to make here, that's it's kind of subtle and, and it, it, it gets lost on most people. It's, it's really two points. Uh, number one, forbearance used to be hard. The FCC, because the statute says it, used to have to analyze competition. And, and if you're a Democrat and you want the FCC to regulate aggressively, that's really important because you don't want a Republican FCC that actually wants to deregulate um, to use forbearance uh, just willy-nilly to just remove everything in the act. But that's essentially what the FCC has opened the door to, because in order to regulate up by invoking Title II and then immediately regulate right back down again, they essentially had to say, well, we can just forbear whenever we want. Well, it doesn't matter what the competition analysis looks like, because here the FCC, of course, is saying, well, broadband isn't competitive. There's all this problem we have to regulate, but then we're going to turn around and forbear. So that just, I want to say this first, because whatever you think about that neutrality, that should be chilling to people who want the FCC to be very active because it means that if you get a Republican in the White House who actually cares about free markets and wants to deregulate, which probably isn't going to happen anytime soon, but if it did, that person could use this order, the precedent here, to gut this order, net neutrality regulation, and basically everything else in the act. And this brings up the problem of selective enforcement. And if the Title II, or if Title II of the 1934 Communications Act were so appropriate for the modern internet, and I'm not going to make the point that any old law doesn't apply to the internet, because then we get into the- Well, like the, the Fourth Amendment, ex- the First Amendment. Exactly. Just a law being old doesn't mean it doesn't apply. However, if in order to make it work, the FCC has to gut 
what are many core provisions of it and then just say that, well, they're not gone forever because anyone can come back in and say and build a record that says that they're needed again, there's your problem. And yesterday at the event, just to give some credit to the other side, Sarah Morris from the Open Technology Institute at the New America Foundation, a proponent of the rules, say that the FCC did build a record showing that broadband providers had the incentive or had done in the past bad things to the internet and therefore the rules were solid. Her point was that if a Republican president wanted to come in and undo Title II, that they would have to also build a substantial record, basically saying that unforbearance or just changing things in the future is not something that they're concerned about as proponents of net neutrality. What do you think about that? So there's there's two different things going on here, but they're related, and you've done a good job setting them up. So um, in both cases, the core issue is what does it take for the agency to change its mind? And my basic point here is that the agency has made it so easy to for a future FCC to change its mind that uh, the FCC is going to be able to go up or down in um, the amount of regulation to enforce selectively, to basically do whatever they want to punish uh, companies that don't uh, that don't support the administration, they, they can do any of that. Either ex- they, can, they can expand Title II to cover more than just broadband providers. They could uh, go, they could just give up on Title II if they wanted to say this was a mistake. If a Republican FCC wanted to turn this back entirely, so that would be either expanding reclassification or undoing it. But the same can be said for for unforbearance. Right. The point is that forbearance is not a power to terminate provisions of the act. It's not a way for the FCC to say, this thing that we, this power that we used to have, we're never going to use again. Like like rate regulation, like deciding what consumers pay for broadband, which was included in Title II, and the FCC said, well, this is inappropriate for the modern age, so we're going to kind of put this on the back burner, but it is a back burner. It is not a trash heap forever. So Chairman Wheeler has promised again and again that there will be no rate regulation. Now, he's already done things that actually amount to rate regulation. On the business side. But but setting that, and then some other things. But setting that aside, that promise is, is, is meaningless because there is no way for a current FCC to stop a future FCC from reversing a forbearance decision. And there is a single uh, note, there's one paragraph in the FCC order that obliquely acknowledges this. But but that's the second point that I was building up to here. So when you look at this as a matter of constitutional law, what you have is the agency saying, yeah, we know that this, this uh, Title II thing really isn't a good fit. And, and as proof of that, we have to bend over backwards to use forbearance in a way that's never been done before with essentially no analysis to justify that, no analysis to say the market is competitive enough for us to forbear. What that says is the agency itself acknowledges that Title II isn't a good fit. And then here's the subtle part that people still don't get their uh, arms around and that, the, that the, the two judges on the three-judge panel missed. Once you acknowledge that, then you have to ask, okay, well, what has the FCC actually done? And, and what the FCC would say they've done is, well, we're only imposing Title II light. It's the modernized version of Title II. But I would say no. In fact, we now have the entire fat ass of Title II sitting on the internet and it's just a question of whether the FCC wants to use it in two ways. One, the FCC can always unforbear, nothing to stop them from doing that. So all those provisions of Title II are out there and can be used at any time. And the FCC has made it very easy for itself to change its mind under the Supreme Court's Fox decision. There's supposed to be a bar, an analytical bar for doing that. It doesn't really mean much here. But number two, 
that the FCC, yes, has for, has foreborne from the, the parts of the of Title II that specifically call uh, for things like unbundling. You have to open up your network and allow other companies to sell your service as if it were their own, okay? The problem is the FCC did not forbear from the two core provisions of Title II, the ones that actually allow for rate regulation and for the FCC to regulate essentially any other practice of a, of a common carrier. Those were the two provisions that were in that 1887 Railroad Act. They're at the heart of Title II. Everything else is essentially just a more specific version of that. So forbearing from those things doesn't actually stop the FCC from doing all the things we're concerned about that would undermine investment in broadband and so on. And there's a real issue here about which companies are on the shit end of the FCC at any given time. And of course, it was mostly edge providers that supported the FCC's rules because as we've talked about on the show, they think that injecting the FCC into negotiations over interconnection and when Netflix uses a bunch of traffic, should they have to pay for the overhead required to operate a broadband network, they thought they could get a better deal by throwing the FCC into that mix. And then all these things about principles of net neutrality were, was messaging around essentially a dispute between two companies. And while under this FCC, broadband providers have basically been getting killed, um, and it helps that their customer service is bad and consumers don't like them, whereas they like free services like Google and Facebook, whatever, um, those companies are getting killed. However, in the next FCC, what if it's Trump? I mean, he's been talking about things like the Washington Post. You know, oh, I'm going to go out to the Washington Post. There are companies that pulled out of the Republican convention, like Apple, because they don't like Trump. I mean, is he going to then use the exact same logic to pick winners and losers in the next administration? So people should be concerned about the FCC essentially deciding which companies they're going to go after. And uh, our colleague Tom Struble brought up a really good point yesterday. Broadband companies, when they're planning their investments, they can't plan in two-year cycles and four-year cycles based on who the hell happens to be in office. That's crazy. I mean, you're going to – Verizon buys Yahoo. I mean, that's a great purchase except when the broadband privacy rulemaking comes out and then it makes it look like a bad purchase. So it's just very hard to operate a business when you're basically unsure about what things are going to look like. And talk about uncertainty, forbearing, unforbearing, changing your mind, saying the record says this, the record says that. And this begs the question, why are we leaving this up to a regulatory agency? Why is there not a congressional statute that clearly defines the FCC's narrow authority over certain net neutrality concerns that are legitimate? Or have the court judge things on a case-by-case -case basis or just something other than the FCC deciding whatever the hell it wants at any given time based on who happens to occupy the chair? Yeah. Well, so back to your point about how old laws are not necessarily bad. Old laws that we like are ones that have standards, like the Fourth Amendment, the First Amendment. The courts have developed standards over time, and they constrain what government can do. And there's a back and forth between government and the courts. The problem fundamentally with the 1934 Act, the problem with Title II, the problem with the FCC, is that the agency gets broad power to do whatever it decides is in the public interest. And that standard has no meaning. It is a, it's a euphemism for saying that the FCC is a purely political agency and can do whatever it wants. So the bottom line here is that needs to be fixed. And yeah, maybe a Republican FCC might roll back this order. That doesn't fix the problem. I mean, Pandora's box has already been opened here. It's already become clear that the FCC thinks, and, and at least these two judges of the D.C. Circuit have allowed it to, change its mind with really no record at all. What, what Sarah said at the New America Foundation uh, is 
is is true only in a sense. If, if you move the goalposts as they have, if you expand the concept of net neutrality to cover things like interconnection, and then if you also believe the bullshit that companies like Netflix have served up, where, and, and we've talked about this on the show before, they pointed the finger at broadband providers saying that it was the broadband provider's fault that customers were getting slower service. In fact, it turns out that it was actually Netflix that was strategically maneuvering in order to pressure those companies to, to give them interconnection for free, something that they'd always had to pay third-party providers for. So in that sense, you have to go through layers and layers to see why what they're, what advocates of, of, of what the FCC is doing or saying is, is just not true. So when you pull all that away, you, you you start to see what the former chief economist, a Democrat who was at the FCC under the Obama administration, you start to see what he meant when he called the FCC an economics-free zone. His point was that in this process that happened after he left, this is Tim Brennan, that the FCC, when it went through this rulemaking on the open internet order, didn't take any serious consideration of the economics of this market. They didn't look at all to understand what was really happening to see whether there might be beneficial uses of paid prioritization. We've talked about this on the show before. Uh, live video gaming, for example, live conference calling. These are the kinds of things that that are at the heart of the concerns of the Silicon Valley tech entrepreneurs and investors who joined on our petition for, for appeal. They're people who've been pushing VoIP services from the beginning, people like Jeff Pulver, one of the founders of, of Vonage, that they are concerned that the FCC has essentially deleted the line between the internet and the telephone network. So for the longest time, this debate has been portrayed by proponents of the FCC regulating broadband as team cable versus team internet. And essentially what they're saying is that there's a divide between the companies that provide internet infrastructure and build it and the companies that then uh, transmit services over those pipes and that they can never be in agreement and you got to pick a side and clearly the side that is cool is team internet because who the hell likes Comcast, right? Kind of an oversimplification of the situation. And the idea is that the only people that could possibly oppose these rules would be the infrastructure companies. Now, Tech Freedom, I mentioned that we're an intervener in the case. And when we intervened, we are representing not Comcast, we're representing internet entrepreneurs. We're representing Jeff Pulver, the founder of Vonage. We're representing Scott Bannister, who was an email pioneer. We're representing Daniel Berninger, who straight up told me that he has a business idea that was made illegal by Title II, and that's why you haven't seen it yet. So well, why, if, if this notion that it's team internet versus team cable, who are these entrepreneurs who oppose the FCC and think that Title II would actually harm them, not just broadband companies? Well, Dan Berninger is is actually a petitioner. He, okay. he has a very similar set of arguments to ours. And there are people who are concerned that the services that they want to develop are going to be regulated by the FCC under Title II. And what that means is that they're going to have to go to the FCC on bended knee and ask for permission to try to do these things. Right now, think about the irony here that for, for 13 years, net neutrality has been pushed by the tech world in the name of permissionless innovation, saying that they're afraid that broadband providers are going to uh, censor or stop new innovators. That compete with them or right. that Comcast is going to slow down Disney services because they own NBC. It's all these like hypothetical nightmares. Right. And indeed, hypothetical. I mean, that we can count on one hand the number of examples where there's actually been anything like that that's, that's happened in the U.S. 
And those things have either resolved themselves very, very quickly on their own without the government intervening or could have been resolved through other forms of regulation. The Federal Trade Commission, just I have to emphasize this, we have our beef with how they work in many ways, but they are fundamentally a more sound agency because their legal standard is focused on consumer welfare, on anti-competitive harm, on deception, and on things that injure users. And so, for example, in 2007, 2008, when Comcast was accused of, of secretly throttling BitTorrent traffic, and the FTC wanted to bring an enforcement action, there was an agreement between the, the Democrat ranking member, who later became chairman, and the Republican chair at the time. They were going to do it. And the only reason they backed down was because the Republican chair of the FCC decided he was going to handle this. And we went down that fork in this path. And we have now for the last eight years, been living with the consequences of that decision, which is trying to get the FCC to regulate something that it does not have clear authority to regulate. And that has led it to start to claim sweeping power again and again. So, so that's the concern that our other interveners have. Uh, we don't have time to unpack them fully. We'll put in the show notes our motion to intervene, which describes the specific concerns they have, the specific things that they might have wanted to do. And I'll just mention for now that one of those things, uh, a lot of them are about VoIP service because it's the, it's a uh, if you do it in a very high quality way, it's very latency sensitive. So you want to be able to, to get prioritization. If you can't pay for it, you're not going to get it, which any economist could tell you, but the FCC didn't bother to ask them. But there are some other things that uh, our interveners are concerned about. And one of them, for example, has uh, been planning to develop a, a sort of unbundled version of wireless service, where instead of paying for a plan that gives you a certain amount of data for the month, you might pay a lot less for a plan that you just put together yourself that says you want Facebook and email and this and that. And that's the kind of thing that starts to look an awful lot like a violation of the FCC's order. So bottom line, you file the petition on Friday. Uh, I watched an hour and a half debate between you and some folks who disagree with you on this issue yesterday, and I came away from that panel thinking that this is kind of a long shot. Um, the The initial uh, case was decided two to one. Uh, a, a panel of the D.C. Circuit. Um, you are you filed a petition for Tech Freedom filed a petition for rehearing, which is asking the full eleven judge panel to then hear the case. Uh, that is mostly made up of Democratic appointees. And of course, if a Republican gives a strong Republican appointee, I should say, as if the judiciary hasn't become completely politicized, um, if a Republican appointee writes a really strong dissent, that might pave the way for a petition for Supreme Court. But I mean, how likely do you think this is? I kind of came away thinking, eh, this is a tough one. So it's certainly true that in general, the appeals courts uh, rarely agree to rehear cases and that in uh, the Supreme Court uh, rarely grants cert appeal. Okay, so we have to acknowledge that that's true. However, this is an extraordinarily important case. I mean, the FCC chairman himself says again and again, this is the most important network ever in the history of mankind. He cannot stop but gushing about the importance of this issue. And that really feeds into one of the reasons why courts will agree to rehear cases, as well as one of our legal arguments, which is, in a nutshell, that the core issue in this case is will the courts defer to an agency interpretation? Or will they review the statute de novo, uh, that is, from scratch themselves, and ask if what the agency is doing is really consistent with what Congress intended? And, and basically, there are two arguments for that. Number one, 
This is a case of extraordinary importance, as the chairman himself always says. And that is something the Supreme Court has increasingly been saying is a reason not to apply the very deferential analysis of the Supreme Court's decision in Chevron, the, the, the most famous administrative law case ever. Uh, the, so that's the first reason. And that essentially was why in the Obamacare case, even though the government won in that case, Chief Justice Roberts did something very important that most people have not understood, which is he said the court was not going to defer to the agency. It was going to examine the statute itself and 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 determine what Congress intended. Government won there. But he made clear the government is not always going to win in those cases. And in the other cases where the court has has said this is a major question, the government is lost. So that is a question that may not get us a rehearing at the D.C. Circuit, but it should at least get us dissents, as you noted, and it should set the stage for the Supreme Court to rehear the case. And then at the Supreme Court, this is not going to be a partisan issue because, for example, Justice Breyer has actually been saying uh, that sort of thing over the years, saying that we need to look carefully what Congress intended before applying the deferential standard of Chevron. So you could wind up with a decision at the Supreme Court that breaks out of a partisan mold, even if the decision at the D.C. Circuit denying rehearing is very partisan. So that, that's the first argument. The second one, you already alluded to this earlier. You made this in layman's terms, where you talked about how the need for this blanket forbearance in such an arbitrary way that doesn't do any competition analysis really reveals that the agency itself acknowledges that Title II is not actually a good fit for broadband, that, that the Congress wouldn't have intended that. And that fits very neatly into a court case that the Supreme Court decided in 2014 called uh, Utility Air Regulatory Group, or UARG versus EPA. We think that case is a pretty good fit here. We're going to be making that argument. And it all turns on, some people say, well, the EPA didn't have forbearance authority. The FCC does. That's a red herring, because the issue is not that the, that the agency can temporarily forbear from something, that Congress gave it the power to do so. The issue is, does the agency itself, does what it, say, it says about the, uh, the, the nature of the statute, what does that reveal about what Congress intended? And I think the FCC essentially has, has hung itself with its own words. Well, in case uh, we aren't completely sick of this topic after all these other new procedural things happen, we might actually do another episode about this to update listeners on what happens with the petition for rehearing and whether this kicks up to the Supreme Court and whether the election plays into this and whether whoever gets elected influences what Congress does. Because as we said earlier, we talked about the politics earlier in the show, this is not a done deal because of the logic the FCC has used. It can be fought over and over again. And there are some groups that would love nothing more than be able to fundraise off of this forever and ever. Um, and the incentives are not necessarily to resolve it. So uh, we'll be looking at uh, legislation. And Baron has one more comment, uh, but then I'm going to cut him off because, oh, my God. <laughs> All right. Well, the first one is it's, I, I don't want to have this fight anymore. I'm tired of this. This doesn't get us anything. I want to see this issue resolved in legislation. Tech Freedom has made a standing offer to other groups across the aisle to sit down and work on potential areas of consensus. And I mean that, I, I'm happy to talk about that. But I do just want to close just by noting what the timeline is going forward. If the court denies rehearing, there, I think, will be dissents. I would be very shocked if there were not. And those dissents could take a very long time to be written. So we might end up waiting. It could be well into next year before we get a decision on this. If something happens quickly, it's probably going to be granting the rehearing, even though I acknowledge that that is not commonly done. Uh, once this is resolved either way, then there will be another 90-day window 
to go to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court can take as long as it wants to decide whether to hear the case, and then it has to schedule arguments. And the point is that this itself could drag out. Just getting to the Supreme Court could drag out for another year and a half or maybe even more. And that's just wasted time. Congress needs to step in and resolve this so that we close these Pandora's boxes of the FCC being able to regulate the internet. And due to the uh, quick scheduling of this episode, and we all have travel arrangements that we need to get to, we weren't able to have someone on here to debate, Baron. But uh, today or early tomorrow at the latest, uh, the YouTube video of our panel will be up. So if you're interested in seeing a more balanced debate and uh, our co-sponsor of the event, New America Foundation, you'll get to see a very lively discussion that I think was very informative, not just for the legal issues, but we also talked a little bit about the policy merits and how the FCC is going to look or work on this in the future. But that's it for today's show. My guest has been the sourest grape in tech policy, Baron Soka. Baron, thanks for joining the show. Getting sour all the time. <laughs> Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, email us at mediatechfreedom.org. Feel free to let us know what you think of the show. Pitch topics and guests. Pitch yourself. Uh, we might have you on. Um, find this podcast in the iTunes store. Please leave us a review because it will help others find the show. And your mom doesn't mind the swearing, right? She's a New Yorker. Uh, where do you think I learned how to swear? <laughs> That's a funny story. That's actually what I told my principal when he asked me why I was cursing in elementary school. She's going to kill me for well, talk, talking about that. She, she taught you well, Evan. <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> Thanks for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.